Ships America, and you are listening to A Bark, A Brig, and A Schooner Walk Into a Bar, a podcast where I get to know the people in our tall ship community. If you've been entertained by these episodes, rate us on Apple or wherever you listen, and please consider donating to Tall Ships America so we can continue to bring you this content. This week's guest is a captain, an inventor, a scientist, and a National Geographic explorer. I had the absolute pleasure of talking trash and microplastics with Rachel Miller of Rosalia Project for a Clean Ocean. We get pretty sciencey. I go on a bit of a rant, but we remain hopeful about the future. If any tall ship organizations would like to work with the Rosalia Project team, you can contact them at rosaliaproject.org. Rachel, thank you so much for taking the time to be here today. Uh, if I can just have you say your name, position, and organization. Thank you for having me. I am Rachel Zoe Miller. My position is founder of Rosalia Project for a Clean Ocean and inventor slash CEO of the Coraball Microfiber Catcher. I am also captain, one of the captains of American Promise. So can you tell me a little bit uh, about the Rosalia Project for a Clean Ocean? Rosalia Project for a Clean Ocean is a nonprofit organization that is dedicated to conserving and protecting the marine ecosystem. And the problem that we have primarily been focused on is marine debris. We've been around for 10 years now. And though we've done a little bit of work on marine protected areas and just a little bit addressing fishing, we've really mostly been working on ocean trash. So what do you mean by marine debris and ocean trash? There's a lot of stuff that people, humans, have made that ends up in our public waterways. And there are a bunch of different types of it. So that would be marine debris on the whole. With Rosalia Project, we have had our eye on three of those types over the last 10 years. So the first that we work on is derelict fishing gear. So this is everything from fishing floats and traps and lines to big nets. We do most of our work from American Promise off of the coast of Maine. And so the derelict fishing gear in Maine and along the New England coast is really related to a trap fishery, the lobster fishery. Uh, not so much huge nets that are cast off and floating around like happen in other parts of the world. The second type of marine debris we work on is what's familiar to most people. It's consumer debris. So that's your single-use plastics and items that are often related to eating and drinking, which of course is fun to do by the river or the bay, uh, but a lot of that stuff escapes our waste management system. And the third is microplastic. Microplastic is sometimes a result of the other two categories, and there are other sources as well. So we work on those three parts of the marine debris problem. How do you collect your information? Are you just going around dragging nets behind you or dragging buckets behind you? How does that, <laughs> how does that, how does that work? Well, for Rosalia Project, we use four strategies to do our work in the big picture. So I'm going to start kind of big picture to answer that question. Our four strategies are cleanup. So we are getting out there and picking up the trash that's already there. 
that is a little bit more of addressing the symptom rather than the cause. So the other 75% of what we do is about prevention. So that's prevention through education, embracing innovation and technology, and doing solutions-based research. And then a couple of our other kind of guiding principles is that we are doing our work surface to sea floor. So shorelines clearly are the most accessible parts, but as sailors with an oceanographic research vessel, we get to also uh, address the surface. And then we have uh, a particular interest in the seafloor. Very few people are working on that. And instead of throwing people overboard, we have an ROV or remotely operated vehicle. His name is Hector the Collector. <laughs> and I imagine him with a little top one. hat. <laughs> he's, he's, a, he's a hard working, pretty happy little piece of electronics. <laughs> he's got a gripper as well as a video camera. So Hector lets us not just see what's on the sea bottom or river floor, but we can also pick up what we find down there as well. So uh, the last bit is that we work in urban and coastal waters. So uh, we operate generally within kind of 30 miles of, of shore. And we do that because we know that 80% of marine debris comes from the land sea interface. It comes from land or very close to shore. And with that in mind, we believe that the most effective, the cost effective and overall effective solutions will be found at that same land sea interface. And so, wow, there's really great, especially scientific work going on in the center of our ocean's gyres. And we respect that for us, we're doing our work, our cleanup, our education, our research, our innovation at the land sea interface. So where's all this, you keep mentioning American Promise. What is, what type of ship is she? Okay, I'm gonna gush a little bit <laughs> because we have a really great boat. All right, so American Promise. American Promise is a little piece of American sailing history. She is a custom built 60 foot cutter rigged sloop, a monohull. She was built in Marblehead, Massachusetts, designed by Ted Hood and built by Little Harbor. And her history is that the, a sailor called Dodge Morgan from Maine, he had a company that uh, made the things that make radar detectors work back in the 80s when that was definitely a thing. And he sold the company and he set out to see if he could break the solo nonstop circumnavigation record. And he had this boat built and he totally did it. So he left Portland in 85. He had all of his self-steering gear, he had three systems, they all broke at some point in the Atlantic. He realized you can't just keep sailing for months on end without self-steering gear. So he turned around, backtracked a little bit to Bermuda fixed it all, set out again from Bermuda, and he blew the record away. So he went around the world in 150 days. That was over two months faster than the previous record. The, technically, the record is Bermuda to Bermuda, 
so we're actually the third owners. Dodge Morgan donated her to the Naval Academy after he broke the record. They used her as sail training for a lot of years. There's more stories here. They sank her. They raised her, rebuilt the boat, and we're the third owners. And Rosalia Project, we've been using her as our oceanographic sailing research vessel, which is pretty spectacular. But one thing that we're really proud of is that we've tried to keep her in front as a world leader, but this time based on sustainability. And so thanks to some help from 11th Hour Racing, we put solar wind and hydropower on the boat. And we haven't turned the generator on or plugged into shore power in six years to provide house bank power. And that's incredible. We're super <laughs> psyched about that. And we don't you should go be. and drive around mm -hmm. to charge the batteries. Like, obviously, the engine alternator charges the batteries. And if we're motoring somewhere because there's no wind, that happens. But we don't just drive around in order to do that. So we're super psyched about that. We eat vegetarian on board, make our own cookies so we don't have to use palm oil. And we've been dabbling in composting lately. Oh, interesting. Dipping into composting. Okay. All There's right. a bug worry. There's understood. Yeah, yeah, understood. Especially a small boat. We're a small boat. It's a small galley. We don't have a lot of places to stash large amounts of organic waste. Now, we don't throw it overboard, but separating it from our standard trash does sometimes present storage problems. Do you want to expand on uh, Coraball, what it is? How did you come up with the idea? It just seems, I was just doing a little bit of research. I was reading some articles, and I was like, that's such a clever idea. Who comes up with that stuff? And you're one of those people who comes up with that stuff. Well, I appreciate that. We have a good little team. We have a good little team. So you know when you learn about a problem or you learn just you hear something and mm -hmm. some things kind of roll off and you think, oh, you know, I just learned a thing or I knew that already. And some things that you learn just, we call it scream at you. Mm -hmm. They don't just speak to you. Like mm -hmm. it's not just whispering, but it's <laughs> screaming. And so when we learned, we didn't discover microfiber pollution. We were not the people who discovered it, but we did learn about it pretty early because we were working on microplastic and trying mm -hmm. to keep up on the various research happening. And so we learned about microfiber pollution pretty early mm -hmm. and we thought, wow, this is going to be a problem that we think is going to prove to be a really, really big ocean and waterways problem. And the magnitude of it is going to be bigger than I think we can even guess. We want to see if we can be part of the solution or if we can come up with a solution and, and see, since it's so early, if we can also inspire other people to want to become part of the solution and see if we can contribute to the knowledge about this newly discovered problem. On the science side, we started to include fiber, microfiber. So as opposed to the filament fiber that comes off of fishing gear and ropes mm -hmm. and things, that's quite big mm -hmm. compared to what I'm talking about. So what I'm talking about is the tiny little pieces of fiber that break off of our clothing. And when it was first discovered, that connection was in the washing machine. And so if we just look at that, an incredible amount of 
our clothing washes out the drain every single time we do the wash. Imagine there's clothes that go threadbare. There's favorite t-shirts, things get softer, fleeces definitely lose their fluff. Nobody, least of all us, thought about where those threads go. We just started working in these sort of multiple ways. And so that meant learning about the problem with the science that was out there. We ended up contributing to the science by doing expeditions on the Hudson River specifically. We, mm -hmm. we sampled the whole Hudson River on the surface. And then last year we went back and in, uh, sampled in the air, the water and the soil. So we're still working on those results. And we, at the same time, looked at ways to stop it. So if it's happening in the wash, the, there's different ways to stop it. You can make clothes stronger. Well, I don't have any expertise in textiles. Uh, maybe some kind of coating. Again, I don't have expertise in chemistry to that mm -hmm. level. So the next place to look would be washing machines, mm -hmm. uh, filter, super obvious. And, uh, and that needs to happen. Right. But what we realized is that these things are so small that the engineering that needs to happen to keep people from having to stand at the washing machine and clean off a thing like multiple times during a load, the engineering that is required to do that and to do it in a way that doesn't make our washing machines $5,000 each, that's going to take some time. Because not only do you have to engineer that, but then you need to convince the washing machine manufacturers to retool and da da da. So we recognize that needs to happen, but we decided that the, the solution path we were going to go down was with consumers. That led us to the question that actually changed everything. What do we really need to do? And, and obviously the end goal is stop microfiber from getting out the wash, but that, that's not the answer. The answer to the question was, we need to catch small things in moving water. And when we broke it down like that, we realized that coral totally does that. Catches small things from moving water. And when we realized that we had inspiration from nature, so of course this process is called biomimicry, we didn't say we want to do biomimicry, but once we realized that's, that's the answer, we kind of embraced that and our design changed to a, an object that really quite closely resembles coral. <laughs> well, it, it does make sense though. I mean, you know, in my mind, I was like, well, we empty the lint trap every time we, we do the dryer or we should, a PSA, empty the lint trap every time you... <laughs> Truth. Every time Truth you do your laundry, that. but <laughs> so that's kind of like a moving lint trap. Yeah, that's a great way to think of it—a moving lint lint trap. And so, and 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 what's also such a nice observation you made there is that the microfiber I'm talking about is lint. This is washer lint as opposed to dryer lint. Because yeah. here's the here's the implications. You know, for anyone who might be thinking, so what? And that's a fair, a right. fair. It washes away. What do I care? Right. Here's the situation. The short version of the situation is that microfiber is escaping into our public waterways where it is being ingested by sea creatures at all levels of the marine food web and throughout then our own human food web. Mm -hmm. We have also, the collective scientific we, have found microfiber from textiles in non-seafood related food sources and brace yourselves it's been found in beer what oh <laughs> the show stop for that one usually <laughs> that's tragic so honey salt tap water 
uh, bottled water and beer. And in terms of the human side, we don't know yet. Mm. There's a lot of research going on, mm-hmm. but as far as my personal take and with the Zalia project and Coraball, we're not waiting around right. to find out that ingesting this much synthetic material is fine. Yeah. Hope is you, not is, my favorite strategy. <laughs> what is your background? I know my creeping around when I was doing my research that you went to Brown University, Woot. <laughs> Rhode Island. <laughs> Woo. Um, but that you actually majored in marine studies and underwater archaeology. Underwater archaeology, yeah, a lot of that. I'm kind of a type of person. I'm like a jack of all trades, master of none. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, I prefer Jane of all trades, but okay. <laughs> oh, Jane, oh, I like that. Yes, a Jane of all trades, master of none. So I like to do a lot of things. I don't like every day being the same. Mm-hmm. And probably the most telling thing or the most what's guided me the most or has has been difficult on the sort of guiding thing is that you know when you look at hemispheric preference brain hemisphere yeah. so left brain right brain i have always come out of those tests without a preference oh. so <laughs> you could say whole brain or no brain whatever however you want to look at that so so the consequences of not having a strong hemisphere preference are that I love art and science equally. Mm-hmm. And if one loves art and science equally, it is really hard to choose in traditional schooling situations because you know there's not in traditional non-interdisciplinary situations or schools, you, you, you know, you have to be on one side or the other. Right. And so I did, did a fair amount of flip-flopping. And uh, Brown is fairly a traditional in mm-hmm. that it allowed me to have equal brain preferences <laughs> and not necessarily just go down a very narrow path. Yeah. And so <clears throat> I did, I actually transferred into Brown and after three semesters abroad, two se- uh, three semesters at University of Rochester, and then three semesters abroad, mostly studying marine studies, uh, marine mammal biology and conservation in Baja, Mexico, and cool. Great Barrier Reef Ecology in, uh, and Rainforest Ecology in Australia. And then, of course, Sea Education Association, the best of all <laughs> semesters abroad, in my opinion. Uh, I didn't realize you did SCA. I didn't realize you did SCA. So were you on, which yeah, ship were on you on? Westward. Oh, myself right now. I was on the westward. <laughs> yeah, and it was it was spectacular. It really yeah. was. I did it my sophomore year. In fact, SEA was the only thing I knew. Looking at colleges, <laughs> the only thing I knew is that I wanted to do SEA, and that whatever college college I went to needed to acknowledge that credit. <laughs> Have you ever used your your un, the underwater archaeology portion of your degree? Yeah, so so then you know I go to Brown and I, I try to study art semiotics. I actually went to Brown to because Brown had a sailing team. I had two uh-huh. criteria for transferring, so <laughs> one was a sailing team, and the other was either a semiotics department, which is the study of signs. I thought I wanted to go into advertising, so for me that was the art side. Oh. 
and the or a marine science department. And so uh-huh. essentially after I did SCA, I realized, okay, one, I'm not at the right school. I'm not doing the right sport. I want to sail. I don't want to swim. And I, I want to either study marine science or this semiotics. I had taken a class in semiotics at the University of Rochester. And so uh, it turns out that Brown was one of the preeminent underwater archaeologists. And this sort of snafu that happened, I had already taken a lot of classes that were cross-listed in anthropology because of the semiotics. Anyway, what we realized is that thing I'd been looking for was right there. Mm-hmm. Underwater archaeology is a combination of art and science. Absolutely. That I didn't even really know existed. <laughs> and it was amazing because then I got to essentially drop everything that I was doing and just kind of figuratively and literally submerse myself in a field that I hadn't really been um, super familiar with from the sort of science side, only from like the treasure hunter side. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like the media. <laughs> yeah. And it was amazing. And I even after graduating spent basically a month underwater in the dry tortugas uncovering all sorts of cool things uh, and living in the fort down there. Oh, yes, that's so cool. Which is awesome. (laughs) And so if we kind of connect the dots kind of quickly after graduating, I did the dry tortugas and then I went to Australia to work. Uh, I I went to do underwater archaeology. They lost the funding. I ended up doing sort of anthropology at the Western Australia Maritime Museum in Fremantle. I did an Olympic sailing campaign after that, didn't make the Olympics. And then ran a community sailing center, so a nonprofit. Uh-huh. And then after that, ran my own kind of for-profit, uh, essentially kind of camp in the summer, mm-hmm. shipwreck tours with the ROV, and taught people to snow kite, kite surf, and windsurf, and then stand up paddleboard when that got invented. And all of those things, every single thing, though scared the crap out of my parents <laughs> like, dude, we sent you to really good school and you're a kite surfing instructor right yeah. Uh, yeah it all contributes to my work with that I'm doing now like mm-hmm. all of it mm-hmm. led me to the work that I'm doing now which what I call is expedition science mm-hmm. and ocean conservation like mm-hmm. if I had to kind of wrap it up, mm-hmm. but all of it was important. The anthropology, probably the most important of it all. The underwater archaeology, in some ways, is exactly what we're doing with the trash, but just in a modern era, as opposed to looking at super old stuff. We covered everything the last time we spoke, uh, except about how Rosalia Project integrates into our tall ship community. Um, We spoke about your wonderful vessel, American Promise, but have you worked with any of our tall ships? Yes, and we are so grateful. (laughs) Here's the thing. The reality is that American Promise is for now just a summer boat. We operate in the Gulf of Maine. We are June, July, and August in general, and so that's such a small part of the year for a problem that definitely is not just a summer problem. And so we've been so very lucky to have been able to go on uh, 
trips around in various parts of the country to deliver a combination of our education programs, our data cleanups, and data collection in shoreline trash as well as microplastics. And so we've partnered so far with the AJ Meerwald and Piscataqua here on the East Coast, and the Tullymore and the Adventurous on the West Coast. So what's nice is that we go on, generally we did it with Hector the Collector. So Hector, can, Hector is a micro ROV. So he's about the size of a microwave-ish, smaller microwave. I know he's not cute, <laughs> little so yellow cute. microwave with a little gripper. Oh my God, I can't even stand how cute that is right now. <laughs> <laughs> I love you for that. So we travel with Hector and except for the Tolly Moore. So Captain Mark Waddington, Fnark, he had a cousin of Hector. So Video Ray oh. is who makes that ROV. And he also had a Video Ray on board. One of the very best uh, videos that we have taken in all of my years with Resolve Your Project was that day. And we had my ROV Hector, and I don't think Schnark named his, wow. but the two ROVs are just, just that's sat. for sure. I know. Just sat. We actually also have a drone that we named Hover. Probably predictable. Yeah. yeah. All right. <laughs> we can, we'll work on that. We'll, we'll ask the audience for suggestions. <laughs> okay. We're, we're open. Uh, so the two ROVs are sat side by side. And at that point, we just had the camera rolling and recording. And we were interacting with the kids on board in the lab. And every now and then we'd watch and we saw some cool fish and, and that was fine. A week later, I was somewhere where we couldn't launch the ROV for some reason. So we had all this equipment and we're just kind of showing the ROV off but we couldn't launch. So I got out the video that we had taken off Catalina with Snark and we started watching it and it was, amazing because there was a puffer fish that puffed Ooh. that we all missed while it was really happening and an octopus <gasps> cruised around behind everything turning itself into all the background oh was, that's yeah. so cool rachel so cool <laughs> so it turned into this kind of corally part and then it moved and then it turned into sort of the rock and then it moved and it turned itself into a different rock and we never saw it in real life because the octopus was that good. Did the kids, were their, were their kids' brains just like blown? Yeah. Explosion. <laughs> because it was one of the students who saw the octopus first. It wasn't me pointing it out, which I have oh done. Oh my God. I literally have chills. That's so nerdy. <laughs> no, it is not nerdy. It is worthy. It is, it is showing how a piece of technology like this can give people access to a place they may never go and see things in real time, in real life, or almost real time, but definitely real life. Like I do support aquariums and people being able to connect with a part of our natural world that they'll never see. But there's something about knowing that like, I'm the pilot and here's the machine that did this. So it's pretty cool to combine the, sort of modern ocean engineering style technology with the technology uh, of tall chips at whatever type of technology that is. So 
maritime history or whatever uh, whatever that ship is focused on and uh, and combine them it's pretty cool yeah I can imagine oh that's awesome that's so cool it must be amazing to be able to bring something like this to kids you know it's one thing to see it in a classroom on a screen it's another thing to be actively involved in collecting that information what do you find with these kids do you find that they're so much more engaged do you do you feel as though they have this is something that they want to do in the future so in the moment absolute engagement we have photographs upon photographs of what we call rov face it's this <laughs> kind of jaw dropped eyes open pointing sometimes like just you can tell people are exclaiming words of exclamation <laughs> of wonder uh so we call that rov face and adults even have that but the kids it's a pretty rowdy moment of science and i love rowdy science for me, that is what informal education is all about. Three dimensions, rowdy, exciting, live, real time. And so we try to really involve the students. So they are our co-pilots. We call them co-pilots. I fly within reason where they want me to. If someone sees something and I need to turn a little bit to port, we'll turn to port uh, on their direction. And I think proof of it is one of the best comments a kid has ever made, which was uh, we were at uh, community boating in Boston on the Charles. I would call that a target-rich environment. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Agreed. <laughs> and we are just picking up like bag and bag after bag and cup, plastic cup after plastic cup and beer bottles and baseball caps and all sorts of things. Uh, Probably Yankees baseball with, caps, not Red Sox. But. I was going to say, you can tell when they're <laughs> losing. People get upset. Uh, and, and at one point, this one kid, this little boy, had been standing like in my business the whole time. <laughs> it, he just shouts out, this is like a treasure hunt for the environment. I was like, you, dude, are hired as my marketing director. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God, I would have died. <laughs> it's the cutest thing. I, just, I can remember where he was standing. I remember his little T-shirt. Like, it was awesome. It's, I think there's just something about the realness because it really is real. It's mm -hmm. not simulated. Mm -hmm. It's it's real. If a, if we get attacked by a lobster, we are really getting attacked by a lobster. We didn't. They can see we didn't start it. Right. <laughs> you know, we do, if we find a ton of of chip bags, we found a ton of chip bags. We didn't plant them. Right. Right. You know, it's it's all real. And um, as far as the big picture goes, I think just the ROV program alone, I've learned over the years. It does for me. It's not quite good enough. It is definitely the best thing. Nearly all the kids do that day. Yeah, probably the best thing they do all week. Mm -hmm. But I think in order to have the kind of lasting impact that we aim for, we really started making it part of a much more comprehensive program that involves a little more interaction with the data. So what we picked up, 
a little more interaction with the big picture and a whole lot more focus on, well, now what? A lot more on the solution side. Okay, that's hard because so I can imagine that it becomes very overwhelming. You know, as someone who lives and breathes it and is so passionate about it, how do you not let it overwhelm you? In the marine debris world, we are extremely lucky compared to people working on climate change, mm. because I have yet to meet a marine debris denier. Uh. I have yet, <laughs> I haven't yet met a microplastic denier. Okay. All right. Now, well, that's hard. That's a big picture. Yeah. So there is universal acceptance that this is a problem. Mm -hmm. And that's where anything universal or any agreements end. So right. it's, you know, it's a little tongue in cheek and a little bit not. So it, it is good for the energy to yeah. know that whether we all disagree with how to prevent it, how to clean it, how to deal with it, the solution side of it, um, there is universal awareness and acceptance that this is a problem. The trash in our public waterways poses various threats mm -hmm. from economic, tourism-related threats mm -hmm. to biological threats to creatures. Mm -hmm. So if we just sort of put health to creatures and people potentially, and then economic because who wants to go to a disgusting beach or we definitely have had people picking up trash as part of our expeditions and bursting into tears of just overwhelm. Um, so I guess the way I deal with it is we are extremely solutions oriented. Mm -hmm. I think if, if people only ever do cleanups without data or anything, just keep cleaning up it, a sense of this is treadmill, like yeah, hamster yeah. wheelness will set in. Yeah. Um, and we don't do that really very, very much on purpose. Mm -hmm. That if you take our four strategies, only one of them is a sort of cleaning up the symptom. Uh -huh. The other 75% is all about being proactive mm -hmm. to develop and deploy and execute solutions right. or monitor or understand them. So that is one thing that helps. The other is a sort of recognition that this is a man-made problem. This is a problem made by the collective we. Corporations and regulatory, uh, the regulation situation is part of it, uh, part of that we. So we collectively have made this problem. And, and I say, I believe that the collective we mm -hmm. can reduce it, can get ahead of it, and we can make it stop. It's going to be hard to just stop, stop. So I have another sort of set of philosophies that sort of guide my not throwing in the towel. And those <laughs> Don't throw it in the ocean. Be responsible about it. Yes. I wouldn't. Exactly. I, I would probably just drop it on my own feet and then go wash it with the Cora ball. <laughs> so like the other sort of bits of philosophy are that uh, it's going to take solutions with an S. Solutions. <laughs> The sooner we can have a collective mindset that not just this problem, but really all of our conservation, especially conservation problems, and even if you want to look at it, the coronavirus, they are going to take multiple groups of people and multiple types of corporations, all contributing a percentage of right. what's going to be a suite of solutions here. Right. You know, you just 
one thing doesn't necessarily do the job. And so for sure true of marine debris. The second is a concept that I just say, lots of littles make a big, mm -hmm. that lots of little tiny problems add up to a big, huge, terrible problem, mm -hmm. but lots of little efforts add up to big positive impact. Another one is what I, the, the, I had this concept in my mind, but we partner with MIT's Environmental Solutions Initiative and they have the word. <laughs> the words are that we're going to need radical interdisciplinarity. So radical interdisciplinarity means to me that the solutions and the people and the corporations and the organizations that we need to bring together cannot all be from science. Mm -hmm. They cannot all be sailors. Mm -hmm. They cannot all be educators. They can't all be liberals. Mm -hmm. That we need diverse diversity to come together and work on the problem, even if they don't even really talk to each other that much. At least we have radical interdisciplinarity being thrown at the problem. One more is sort of of these solutions, values, or things that I go by, which is recognizing that while lots of littles make a big, large corporations cut a wide path. Mm -hmm. And this has guided us not necessarily being on the sort of activist side of the marine debris, the sort of shaming big corporation side, and we need people in that world. But for me and for Rosalia Project, what I've learned is that if we can, through data and good science, guide very large corporations to create demand for better, and so mm -hmm. that might be better objects, better materials, better regulations, better techniques. It's sort of a variety. So if these large corporations demand that light bulbs use less energy, and then they're going to make an order for 20 million light bulbs, we will have light bulbs that use less energy. Right. I was in a very interesting, uh, I was in the audience while at the uh, Global Climate Action Summit in San Francisco a couple of years ago when Alec Baldwin was uh, interviewing Jane Goodall. Ooh. And yes, <laughs> it's spectacular. Uh, Jane Goodall and the CEO of Unilever. And oh. right, picture cool. that on stage. Yeah. Jane Goodall yes. working with, with Alec Baldwin on uh, palm oil and forestry and protecting trees because of their habitat value. What, what, what the Unilever guy said, and I, I hope this has come true, I need to figure it out, but is he said that they are determined to source sustainable palm oil. And he said, and when we do, we're taking Walmart with us. So if you take all the brands, mm -hmm. Unilever, all the crackers mm -hmm. and cookies, like you can't buy, so one of the, we don't buy um, packaged products with palm oil. We don't buy anything with palm oil on it for mm -hmm. the boat. It's part of our sort of, we don't make a big deal about it. It's just kind of a down low. It's really just an excuse for me to get everyone to make cookies, <laughs> homemade <laughs> cookies. We're saving the, the environment. One cookie at a time. <laughs> One cookie at a time. Um, but that for me was a big like, whoa moment. The next day, one of our partners is Kilroy Realty. They're based in California. And John Kilroy, their CEO, he said something along the lines of that light bulb example I just gave. He got up at the same event and, and he, his real commercial real estate company is exceeding 
California's sustainability standards. He's ahead by years of when things need to happen. And he's like at the platinum lead certification level. And what he said was same thing. He said, we tell our contractors, if you want our contract, you need to bring it. Mm-hmm. You need to bring your low footprint. Here's our, this is, we're going to achieve this. Mm-hmm. So you need to figure out how to achieve that. And, and I just realized that for me and our organization, being at the table with big business mm-hmm. is a way yeah. to get something done. And so to sit in between Coke and Pepsi on the Trash Free Seas Alliance and to hear the initiatives that they're working on for me is hopeful. And I know yeah. none of these corporations are perfect. Right. And they haven't necessarily figured it all out. But any motion that comes from them cuts a wake for the rest of us to follow. Right. I think that's, you know, and you're right. I think we have to remain hopeful because, I mean, look at what's happening with plastic straws and plastic bag bans. You know, five years ago, the, the oh, whatever, that's stupid. Why would you need to do that? But now it's happening all over the place and people see uh, see the value in it. Yes, it is easy to be overwhelmed, but I, I think you can't wallow in it. I think you need to look around and see what amazing things people are doing and how far we've come. Um, <laughs> and it's, I was watching a very gentle British murder mystery, which is my way of calming down. <laughs> it's like all the many gentle murder mysteries, and they're always British, and they're always very procedural, and it always looks like it's done in the 70s, even though it's from like 2004. And so... <laughs> Picture so, that. <laughs> so it's um but like the very first episode it, it was they were opening up people were having a picnic and then they uh they were they cleaned up by just just waving the blanket so everything just like flew all over the place and just left god you know can you imagine someone doing that nowadays like people would just In come out movie. of the movie people would come out of the like what are you doing <laughs> yeah so no, like, we I, have I come really say, far <laughs> you're right we the amount like when we started Getting an opportunity for me to present about ocean trash was pretty difficult. Mm-hmm. I could get education opportunities to talk to kids mm-hmm. and an occasional community presentation, but no one wanted really to talk about the trash. And now people want to talk trash. <laughs> <you know? laughs> now people are interested in there's and to talk solutions and to be part of the solutions and yeah and if we learned anything with microfiber it's very interesting it really bums people out when they hear that doing their own laundry is contributing plastic and other materials to food and water mm-hmm. and they want to take action right away mm-hmm. i i had people in the beginning write to me <laughs> they're like you know, after hearing your talk, I didn't do laundry for like three weeks. <laughs> like, no, nope, that's not the solution. Yeah. <laughs> it's like conserving water by not showering. You're like, first of all, there's a better way. Yeah, yeah there's can, a much better way. We can do both things here. <laughs> We've certainly covered a lot of uh, stuff here. <laughs> I know. So I have, uh, I just have like one or two other questions. One, I really okay. want to know what it means to be a National Geographic Explorer. Do you get a special hat? Because that seems like you would get like a really cool, (laughs) 
like a field hat, you know? <laughs> so what exactly does that mean? Because you kind of like dropped it into the conversation earlier. Uh, actually, when we were setting up this call. You're like, yeah, no, can we postpone it? I have a call with the explorers. And I was like, oh my gosh, Rachel. <laughs> I mean, First I of all, it's super cool way. and I want to be part of it. <laughs> I, I still feel like someone needs to pinch me when someone uses that title. So it is, yeah unbelievably exciting to get to say I'm a Nat Geo Explorer mm -hmm. and no hat, but I got one of those yellow rectangle pins that Ooh. I actually put on my Rosalia project hat <laughs> and uh, a flag. Ooh, nice. Yeah, I, just, I just got the flag um, <laughs> when I visited the offices. But actually what, what I think is the most extraordinarily lucky thing to be a Nat Geo Explorer, besides, you know, they gave us funding to do our, our expedition. But what I'm finding is even beyond that is the value of their network. Mm. And they are super motivated. Like they're a very unique funder and that they're very, very motivated to support the mm -hmm. explorers groups. The call I was on this morning was with 50-ish explorers from all over the world, all the parts of the world who work on rivers. Uh -huh. And uh, so to learn about the work that they're doing is cool. And, uh, and and these are people, they're not just science, they're not just plastic. There's people that have the title of storytellers mm -hmm. and uh, conservation. So people who are working from a social science standpoint, as well as the kind of hard science mm -hmm. and education. We fall into a couple categories. And uh, Natio also is motivated to support explorers to collaborate with each other. And mm -hmm. so there's been these opportunities to get to uh, speak with people who are doing really cool things in other fields. And so I get, so they seem to also, not seem to, they clearly are also embracing that same kind of interdisciplinarity that really energizes me. Mm -hmm. uh, bringing together people from a lot of different places, different ages of people, different uh, geographic locations, well, we said that already, different uh, professional and academic pursuits. Uh -huh. And, um, and so that's been, that's been really awesome. Oh, that's super cool. That, that collaboration, that worldwide collaboration is just, that's awesome. Is knowing you're not alone. Yeah. <laughs> like... No, no. And so they did these like breakout room things, which is, uh, so this call this morning, so we were all kind of together in this big, huge, like three pages of gallery view, but then they, they broke us into special Zoom rooms. Right. And in my Zoom room was a river guy in Argentina, the Mekong River, someone who works on the Mekong River, which goes through five countries in Southeast Asia. Uh, we had someone from India, someone from um, Indonesia. Me here in Vermont and New England. <laughs> um, and I guess that's the other interesting thing and, and cool thing and something I need to get used to with Nat Geo is they, they are very vocal about supporting people. Okay. So they don't necessarily kind of try to partner with an organization and then whomever is there is there. Right, that right, right. They okay. like to support people and choose people they think can do something good. Um, you're the only person I know who's a Nat Geo Explorer, so I think that's kind of neat. <laughs> Thanks. And 
I'm the first person I know who was a mentor. No, I, I had met one other person, I think. Uh, but you're you're like the third person who said that. It's funny. Um, I appreciate that. I hope hopefully I have, I can uphold whatever uh, vision people have. <laughs> well, I'm sure I'm sure you'll do just fine. It's not like you're going to start worried. using like throwing plastic straws overboard or anything. I'm sure. <laughs> no. Like you let it go to your head. All of a sudden, you're like, it yeah. doesn't matter anymore. <laughs> <laughs> no. Oh, that is that is so not going to happen. No, <laughs> sorry, that was <laughs> you're like super serious. That is not going to happen. As always, a pleasure. Uh, and it was really, yeah, it was a lot of fun. Way to break up my quarantine. <laughs> Thank you, Erin. It is always super fun to talk to you. Way to break up my quarantine. A bark, a brig, and a schooner walk into a bar is a Tall Ships America production. Theme music provided by Kebab Studios. You can find us in all the usual places, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, at Tall Ships America, and on our website at tallshipsamerica.org. Send us your sea stories or drop us a line at manager at tallshipsamerica.org. As always, be sure to support your local tall ship 